Today happens to be the 101st anniversary of the sailing of a ship known as the Floating City. It set sail on its maiden voyage from England to New York City on April 14th, 101 years ago. It has, of course, since then captured the imagination of every generation And well, might it. It was the most luxurious vessel ever conceived of and built by the ingenuity of mankind. The Titanic was its name. It was designed to be sort of the last word in comfort and luxury with onboard gymnasiums, swimming pools, libraries, high-class restaurants, and even opulent cherry-trimmed guest rooms. She was crafted with all of the advanced safety features, such as a double hull with as many as um, 16 watertight compartments. She had a a powerful uh, telegraph system used by those who were on board, as well as the operations of the ship. It had the latest in maritime uh, technology. So confident that she was unsinkable, the ship carried only enough lifeboats for one-third of her passengers and crew. It was on Sunday, April 14th, 101 years ago, when the Titanic approached the North Atlantic ice fields. At 11 p.m., they received a warning that uh, there were icebergs the size of small mountains, and the, the crew spotted them. Frantic orders were given to reverse the, um, the engines and, and steer this massive ship to port to avoid colliding with one of them, which was dead ahead. While they avoided a head-on collision, they brushed the iceberg. At 11.40, The ice beneath the surface of the North Atlantic treated that ship's steel hull like a knife cutting through warm butter. Jagged ice sliced small openings, no more than a quarter of uh, of an inch wide at some points, but more than 100 feet long. Five of those watertight compartments would eventually fill up with water. Eva Hart was seven years old at the time. She would remain one of the most interviewed women throughout her lifetime. In one particular interview that I read where she was speaking of that that moment, she said that she and her mother were among the fortunate to board one of only 20 lifeboats. She talked about seeing the courageous men and courageous teenage boys helping women and children safely on board. She also remembers seeing men who dressed up like women to try to get on. They were caught and detained. She and her mother safely boarded lifeboat number 14. Her father's last words to her were, hold mummy's hand and be a good girl. She would never see him again. And she was interviewed several years ago. She could still vividly recall watching the ship sink. She remembers the flags waving in the breeze. 
She remembers the colors and sounds. She remembers the distress rockets fired into the air that went unheeded by a ship nearby that would launch several decades of investigation. Eva said that she could still remember listening as the ship's band came out on deck and bravely played the hymn, Nearer, my God, to thee, nearer, still nearer. She remembers from her lifeboat watching the ship tilt upright, break in half, and sink amidst flashes of light and rumblings and explosions. And then she said, and I quote, the deadly silence I still remember that followed as if the whole world was standing still. 1,522 people went down with that unsinkable ship. Before its maiden voyage, if you were anybody, you had a ticket. And the world's most famous and popular, many of them did. After it went down, several of them were recorded overwhelmed with emotion that they had not been on board, like J.P. Morgan, the multimillionaire who had booked a passage in a first-class stateroom. His accommodations had even been built to his specifications, the trimming, a private balcony, and even unique cigar holders in his room. At the last minute, he changed his mind and never boarded. Milton Hershey of Hershey Chocolate had booked passage in order to be a part of history. But the night before, his wife had become ill, and he'd chosen to remain home instead. Can you imagine anyone for any luxury or claim to fame, can you imagine anybody willing to buy a ticket on the Titanic or even to take one offered as a gift if they knew what was going to happen? I read where a first-class ticket on the Titanic was, in today's economy, worth $75,000. It's a lot of change. I mean, if you were somebody, you were a first-class passenger on this historic voyage. But if you knew that boat was going to sink and he had 75000 to burn, you wouldn't spend 75 cents on a ticket. In fact, you couldn't be paid to get on board because of what you knew. There are times when the New Testament delivers a message to the believer and encourages us to live for, to love, to follow God with a number of different incentives. Sometimes it, it shows us the future, and that's an incentive. The coming reward of the believer as they stand before Christ, 2 Timothy 4.8. Another incentive in the New Testament to follow Christ is the fact that he could come at any moment. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10. Still another incentive for godly living, for loving God, is that our lives might suddenly end. We might not get through today. James 4, 13 to 15. And so, like Jonathan Edwards a few centuries ago, resolves to not do anything you would be ashamed to do were it your last act on 
earth. Now, these are all good. These are all godly incentives. Nothing wrong with them. Sometimes the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, motivates us to invest our lives in the glory of God simply because of the fact that any other investment is going to collapse. As if to say that, to set sail on any other boat other than the vessel of God's glory and will is to set sail on a boat that is never going to make it. That's basically the incentive the Apostle John uses now in his letter to believers in the first century and in that the warning to unbelievers. So let's rejoin our study in the first letter of John, the first epistle of John in chapter 2. Head toward Revelation, you'll run into it. Just a few pages long. At chapter 2 and verse 15... John begins a paragraph of thought that I want to focus on today. He says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now, as we rejoin our study through this letter here at this point, you might notice that this paragraph begins with a prohibition. Do not love the world. And it ends with a promise. The end of verse 17. The one who does the will of God lives forever. Forever, And in between the prohibition and the promise is uh, John's inspired motivational technique, at least for this moment, as to why you need to heed the prohibition and set sail for the promise. His motivational technique is basically three warnings. And let me principalize them first and At least the first one before we get back into the text. Number one, warning number one, loving the world reveals your true disposition. Go back to verse 15. Here it is. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now maybe when you read that, you're immediately filled with a little bit of concern or dread. And no, no, you're thinking to yourself, I think I love stuff in the world. I think I love things about the world. I think I love the fact that I'm alive in the world and, and the world I'm, I'm alive in. So I must not love God. Maybe I'm not a Christian. I mean, this week I went to the mall. I love, I, lo- I just love the busyness and, and, and the shopping and that's in the world. I enjoyed my vacation in the mountains and, or at the beach, and that's in the world. And I attended a, a university, and it was worldly, and I got a diploma, and I still have it hanging on my, my, my wall. Oh, my family and I really enjoyed our, our vacation to Disney World. I mean, the word world is in Disney World, so <laughs> I'm not supposed to enjoy that. And besides, I, I, love, I love playing golf because of the nature trails. You end up hiking as you look for your ball, and, and, and I... And I and I love hiking. I could have used you at 8 o'clock this morning. Um, 
I love nature. In fact, I got to tell you this. I was in my study yesterday trying to wrap up this sermon, and it was so beautiful outside, wasn't it? Oh, you got out, huh? Well, <laughs> this is not fair. Well, I was in my study, and I just couldn't stay in there. I told my wife, she said, here, let me help you. And I took my laptop out on the deck, and, and the birds were singing. The red-throated hummingbirds were back just up over my left shoulder. And I, I tell you, I'm, I'm out there. I'm out there loving the world, writing a sermon on not loving the world. It's confusing. (laughs) So I guess, you know, we love the world, things about the world. We enjoy being out in the world. That means we don't love God. No, hang on. Don't burn your bird feeder yet, okay? Or your, your, your golf clubs. You might burn them for other reasons, but not, not for this. What, what's John actually talking about? It'll be helpful for the English reader to understand that the word world or the world can be referring to one of three different dimensions. The word world is cosmos. It can refer to something that is well-ordered, like the world that is the universe. Uh, you can use it, of, and it's used in the Bible, of God's divinely ordered creation. In fact, the word cosmos used in that context gives us our word cosmetics, well-ordered, or literally well-ornamented. Secondly, the word cosmos can be used to refer to the world of, of humanity, people. This is where John writes in his gospel, for God so loved the what? The world. He's not talking about pine trees or mountains or planets. He's talking about People. He loves people. It can be used in that way. Thirdly, John uses this word to refer to the world system. And that usage is negative. John writes of this world system often, meaning it's godless values, it's anti God ambitions, it's God denying authority. This fallen world system, which is actually in the grip of Satan, the evil one, he writes in John, 1 John 5, 9. That's the idea he has here in 1 John 2 and verse 15. Paul, by the way, will use the word cosmos as well when he refers to the wisdom of the world. He's talking about the wisdom of the fallen wisdom of the world system, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 10. So John and Paul refer to the world system that denies the authority of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you can effectively now bring that back in to understand verse 15. If I could paraphrase it, he's saying effectively, do not love a world system that rejects the gospel. For how can anyone say he loves an anti-God world and at the same time say he loves God? Doesn't make sense, does it? And that's what he's referring to here. In fact, he makes it even clearer with the fact that he uses the word agape for love. Do not agape love the world. Agape is the word for faithful, dedicated, self-sacrificing commitment to the object of your love. It is the direction. It is the disposition of your heart. So to love a world system, to be committed to a world system governed by a godless values system, and to claim 
to love, to be committed to God at the same time is a contradictory disposition. You with me? That'd be like a policeman saying that he really loves his job. He really loves upholding the law. He really loves that for which he stands and, and, and that authority which he represents. And then at the same time say he really loves the mafia. And he really loves all the drug pushers out there. And he wants them to be successful. Obviously, he's confused. He can't love both in that way. John's saying, what true believer then would say, I love God. But I also think that the God-denying, Satan-controlled world is fine just like it is. And I love that too. That would reveal the true disposition of his heart. A second warning John the Apostle delivers is that loving the world promises tantalizing delusions. This is where John goes deeper into defining the world system and why the believer struggles against its temptations and and truly agonizes over battles won and lost against it. Why? Because the believer views the world of humanity and its systems as tragically lost and fallen, and we are grieved when we act like it, aren't we? Because we know that in spite of its, its, its marvelous grandeur and, and accomplishments and, and, and advancements, we know, we see it as unable to save itself. We know, in fact, that the human race has lost its purpose to bring glory to God as he originally intended. We see the world when you do go to the mall or to the golf course or to school or to work. You, you, you view the, 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 that world as a mass of mankind entangled in sin and headed for absolute and eternal calamity. That journey might include sumptuous meals and first-class accommodations and sunny skies, but you know you see it as a ship going down. It's going to sink. Now John describes the delusions of mankind on this sinking ship. He writes in verse 16, effectively saying, here's what the world system is all about. Let me define it for you. And he does clearly three different ways. The first is the lust of the flesh. Here's what the world system is all about. The lust of the flesh. Now he uses the word lust here collectively. That is, he kind of grammatically bundles up every possible craving, every possible desire, every possible uh, lust outside of the parameters of God's holy and pure and noble design. And he says, this is the world system. That kind of lust. The word he uses for flesh is a reference to self. It is a lusting after one's own desires. It is a self-centered orientation. It pursues its own ends. One author defined it ultimately a self-sufficient independence from God. And that's really what the lust of the flesh is all about. We become God. We define what's right or wrong. 
We stand for only that which serves our own purposes. And the last thing we want is for anybody to give us any kind of moral restrictions. You could translate this phrase, the base cravings, the evil, self-centered cravings of the human heart. It's that kind of craving, another author wrote, that perverts and distorts all normal desires. It sends mankind into a relentless, unsatisfying pursuit of evil. Pretty bold terminology, isn't it? I mean, and you might notice out in the street and with those that you know, and they might talk about some desire they might have, whether it's some kind of sexual promiscuity or whatever. If you corner them successfully, more than likely you're going to hear them come out with something like, well, that's the way God, what? Made me. It's the way God made me. And you're thinking, wait, I didn't know you believed in God. And even further, I didn't know you believed that God created what was or is. So now you've got a creationist on your hand who believes in God. It's interesting to me that creation by God becomes a person's argument for denying the authority of God. The problem is the lusts, the cravings of the flesh that a creator God does not affirm are cravings after a mirage. It's a delusion. It will not satisfy, but it only brings greater craving. John goes further to describe another distracting delusion. Not only the lust of the flesh, he writes here of the lust of the eyes. This isn't simply referring to attraction by means of the eye gate to something forbidden, though it would include that. It's actually bigger than that. This phrase refers to anything that entices the eyes. They might not even be wrong things. They just become the things that you crave in and against, in opposition to a craving for God. They replace Him. Once they are seen, there is this growing dissatisfaction and discontentment until you possess it, until you buy it, until you have it, until you own it, until you experience it. And again, the warning here implied in this text is that it's going to breed this delusion that if you can get whatever you see, that that will produce satisfaction. This is the advertising strategy of our modern world. They know all of us well, don't they? Because they are made the same way. To present things to your eyes in 15-second clips or a quick billboard or 30-second commercials so that you see it, and we are deluged by that, of course, about 10,000 a day, and that will produce in you then this attempt, this belief that what you just saw, you didn't just want, you actually need in order to be satisfied. You got to buy it. You got to wear it. You've just got to talk on it. You got to drive it. You got to live in it. Decorate with it. Travel to it. Sit in it. Swim in it. Retire to it. Depend on it. Invest in it. Drink it. Eat it. Play it. For starters, 
And the delusion is that you will satisfy that dissatisfaction in life once you've gotten it. So John is effectively asking us if we could sort of turn around his statements into a question, what are you craving? What are you trying to chase down? One author is really interesting to me, recorded the results of a question he asked, and the question was this, if your house was burning down, what would you grab on the way out the door? If it was going to burn to the ground, and you had seconds, what would you grab on your way out the door? And I read the whole list, and no one grabbed their flat screen TV. Here are some of the answers. My childhood teddy bear. My journal. My grandfather's Bible. My daughter. That's reassuring. (laughs) The earrings I wore on my wedding day. The ring my father gave me when I was 12. One woman responded, I would grab my husband and our three cats. I hope it's in that order. (laughs) Things that mattered were viewed as irreplaceable. The truth is the delusion of the world has us racing after stuff that wears out, rusts out, rots away, or just simply goes out of style. Let me pick up a magazine that's about 30 years old and look at the advertisements. It is the promised delusion of satisfaction. John adds a third delusion here. Verse 16, not only the lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes, but the boastful pride of life. The word translated boastful pride occurs only here in the New Testament. And I I found that surprising. You would think that it would appear often. Just here. It's a word that refers to someone that you would call a braggart. Someone who exaggerates something about their life in order to improve their image. It happens to be an epidemic today. In the world of resumes, I have read reports, one employment study interviewed 2,200 professionals at small, medium, and large businesses, and they reported that 70% of their applicants lied on their resume in some form or fashion, whether it was the amount of money they made at their former job, the level of their education, the list of their accomplishments. The reasons for leaving their former job? Lying for the sake of improving image is epidemic. Especially if there is financial or personal or national or political gain at stake. And this isn't a new problem. Why? Because John is describing the human heart, isn't he? And every one of us ought to be checking off the box. Yep, I got a battle with that one. Yep, I got a battle with that one. Yep, I got a battle with that one. Go all the way back to Plutarch, the the Greek historian who lived during the days of Christ. 
he took this word that John used here and he described it. I thought you might be interested in hearing his description. Translated, of course, into English. He says, this is the person who will tell perfect strangers about his investments. How large they are, what gains and losses he has made. You ever sit on an airplane next to a guy like that? But yet, if he goes to his bank, his balance is only one shilling. If he enjoys company on the road, he is apt to tell them how he served with Alexander the Great and how he got along so finely with him and how many jeweled cups he brought home from Asia in his travels, even though he has never been away from Athens. He will say that he was granted a free permit for the export of timber, but didn't do it because he wanted to avoid ill-natured gossip. He was above that. How that during the corn shortage, he sent gifts of money to needy citizens. He lives in a rented house, but he will tell you that it is his family's inheritance. But he is going to sell it because it's too small for his busy lifestyle. (laughs) He lies about everything in order to boost his image. At the heart of it is his favorite topic of discussion, himself. You see, he's, he's chasing this mirage, this delusion, that by building himself up in the eyes of others, he's going to feel better about himself. That's a delusion. It's one more mirage. He's chasing in his self-centered, vain, corrupted, lying world. John ends the verse, verse 16, by saying, if you haven't figured this one out yet, Let me just say, none of this comes from the Father. You can't torture any of this as having come from God. None of it comes from the Father. He delivers one more warning. Thirdly, loving the world ends in tragic destruction. Verse 17, the world is passing away. And also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. And John is not setting up a works salvation system all of a sudden. What he's doing is is he's contrasting the believer with the unbeliever. The unbeliever desires, is passionate about, is committed to fulfilling the will of the world. And of course himself. Contrasting that with a believer who desires to fulfill the will of God. And the person who pursues the will of the world is being reminded here by John that the world is not going to last forever. It's passing away. In fact, he uses the present tense for passing away. It's rather chilling when you understand what he's saying. He's effectively saying the world is already in the process of disintegrating. The world, the fuse has already been lit. Holes have already punctured the hole. It's already passing away. How much do you want to invest in it? It might look like a party. It might be all the rage. You might think, how wonderful, I have a ticket. 
And you might be thinking, the party's just getting started. But in reality, as one author put it, you are dancing on the deck of the Titanic. Your party is on a vessel that is destined to sink. Of course, buried in here, for those believers reading the letter, is that the answer to our cravings and the only solution for dissatisfaction is found in the glorious person of God, our Father, who has redeemed us. It is in obeying Him. It is in accepting His moral parameters. It is found in following Him, for God lasts forever, as it were, and so does the joy of those who follow Him, and one day our flesh will be put away, and that joy will be unrelenting and unmitigated. It will be undiluted joy. Now, in the meantime, John leaves this subtle reminder, and maybe you're ahead of me here, that we as Christians are also right now on the deck of a sinking ship. We, not of the world, but we are in the world. We're on it. (laughs) But we're on it for a reason. We know the fuse has been lit. We know the destination ahead. We just don't know when. We know that we have been assigned by God at this particular point in the voyage of human history, in the place where he's put us to allow that to become a place of influence and warning and testimony. John would effectively say to all of us as believers and all reading this letter, don't buy into the delusions of the world. God has placed you on board so that you could live differently and think differently and invest differently and grow up differently and grow old differently. Don't buy into the same shallow, self-centered, limited perspective of everybody else. We happen to know the future of this ship. That should change everything about our Love for God, our Redeemer, we sang about it earlier, the one who has rescued us. As well as our passion to warn the unbeliever of their imminent, their eternal danger. Have you ever warned anybody? That kind of perspective actually played out on the sinking of the Titanic. 101 years ago. A lesser-known story. Aboard the Titanic was a 39-year-old pastor named John Harper. He was a widower who's traveling with his six-year-old daughter, Annie, along with conflicting reports, his sister or his niece. I couldn't figure out which. He was on his way, ultimately, to Chicago, where he was going to begin his pastorate at the Moody Church. When the ship struck the iceberg and began to sink, it took two hours and 40 minutes to sink, he helped get women to safety and lifeboats. And 
That included his daughter and niece or sister. Then he began looking for others to help. Survivors remember John Harper running around shouting, women, children, and unsaved into the lifeboats. How's that for perspective? I mean, he got it, didn't he? Women, children, and unsaved into the lifeboat. You're not ready to die. He began witnessing to those around him. In fact, during the two hours and 40 minutes it took for that ship to sink, John Harper actually preached on deck. I'm not sure if it made it into the movie. I didn't see the movie. But his text was Acts 16.31. Many people remember him preaching on this text. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Just before jumping into the icy water, the ship nearly under, John gave his life jacket to another man who said he was not a Christian. And then he plunged in. He exhorted those around him in the water to trust in Christ. Only six people would be rescued out of the water by those in the lifeboats. John Harper was not one of them. But one man who went on to share his testimony of his encounter with John Harper said, and I quote, I was floating in the frigid water when Mr. Harper clinging to a piece of wreckage, floated near me. Man, he said, are you saved? No, I said, I'm not. And I fully understood the question of spiritual salvation through Jesus Christ. The waves bore him away, but strangely enough, brought him back a little later to me. And he said to me again, are you saved now? (laughs) No, I said, I cannot honestly say that I am. And he said to me, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Moments later, hypothermia claimed his body. He said, I saw his body sink beneath the waves. And then moments later, I was pulled out by survivors into one of the lifeboats. And there that night with two miles of ocean underneath me, I believed in Jesus Christ. Have you believed? In Jesus Christ? Or is your life bound up in the unsinkable reputation of the world you're sailing on? Are you not old enough to discover within your own heart that the delusions of the world have been feeding you a lie and there really is something more you want and when you have it, it isn't enough. It isn't enough. The time to sing nearer my God to thee then is now. Right now. For the believer, we would be exhorted to never stop singing it for others to hear it. Because that summarizes the greatest pursuit and direction of life. Never stop living, never stop loving, never stop desiring. Nearer my God to thee, still all my songs shall be. Nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee.
Father, you have delivered to us the truth about the future. We are literally hurtling through space on a time bomb destined for eternal judgment and recreation in all of humanity destined for either eternal judgment or eternal joy. If you have been confronted by the Spirit of God with your ultimate disposition and direction and destination and you know it's not heading toward joy but judgment, right where you sit, you can ask Jesus Christ to rescue you, to redeem you, to save you. Do that right now. Don't put it off. No one boarding the Titanic would have conceived of the thought that in the early hours of Monday, April 15th, their ship would sink. The graveyard today is filled with people and not one of them knew the hour, the moment of their death. For those of you who believe, are you settling in on a sinking ship? Are all your passions and cravings having to do with something that will rot or rust or become silly in a few decades? John would say, with all of your passion and love, follow the Father. The battle is worth it. It won't last forever. As you live for him and walk with him and speak for him and bear witness and influence on his behalf, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that we have found safety and eternal harbor in you by means of your cross work, death, resurrection. Good life.